All right, well, good morning again. At least I think it's still morning, right? Yeah, it's still morning. All right, well, um, it's the new year, right? So that means that, uh, that everybody's pumped, everybody's ready, nobody's tired this morning, um, everything's gone absolutely fantastic, and you're looking forward to a brand new year with no troubles, right? Yeah, okay. <laughs> so, um, I, I have a question for you. Most people present New Year, well, actually, I can't even say that. A lot of people present New Year's resolutions every year, right? Um, how many of you ha have in the past made a New Year's resolution to pray more? Raise your hand. Okay, all right. Some of us, right? Um, have you ever thought about why we pray? <laughs> Abby's hand goes up and goes back down. All right. <laughs> um, so, um, like, why do you pray for people? Like, what do you pray about? When you pray for people, what do you pray about? Do you pray about their health? Do you pray about um, maybe, maybe their growth in spiritual matters? Well, just to, just to help you kind of think about it, the, the reason that we pray for people, I think, is out of genuine concern, right? Genuine care for that person. You really want what's, what's, what's best for them, and you know that you can't, so therefore you pray that the Lord is, is, is going to because he can, right? There are things that are outside of our control that are only in God the Father's control. And so we pray for people because we know, we know that we have limitations. Well, New Year's typically presents with a hope, a sense of hope for new things, right? Uh, which I always thought was funny growing up because it falls smack dab in the center of the school year. So it's like, yay, happy New Year. Mine started four months ago. Uh, <laughs> so, so um, I don't know if you echo that, uh, but, but I typically, when I made New Year's resolutions, they, they were around school. Like, this year I'm not going to suck at school. That was, that was almost my new school year resolution every year. Um, and, uh, and that worked once. Anyway, so... <laughs> so um, but, but for, for the new year, right, a lot of people make resolutions. I found out, actually, um, that, uh, that only about 38.5% of Americans make New Year's resolutions. So if you didn't make a New Year's resolution, congratulations, you're in the majority, okay? So, <laughs> so don't feel bad. Um, I did find out, though, that out of the 38.5% percent of Americans that make New Year's resolutions, 23% quit in the first week, and only 36% make it past the first month. So if, if you can math in your head, that's over 50%. Over 50% uh, fail in the first month. And in reality, only 9% of people succeed in their New Year's resolutions. And now, as a defeatist, I'm like, yeah, that's why I don't make them. I'm vindicated, right? <laughs> However, if you've ever made a New Year's resolution and kept it, congratulations. 
But a lot of people make especially prayers for New Year's. Um, a lot of churches will have um, like a watch night service. So they'll, they'll have you stay up with the church family like December 31st into the new year in order to praise God for a new rotation around the sun, a new, a new, a new year of, of hopeful blessing. So as you've come into the new year, I want to ask you, how have you what have your prayers been like? What, what's been filling your mind uh, or, or coming out of your mouth or coming out of your heart for prayers? Are they prayers littered with a sense of hope for possibility, right? Lord, this is going to be a great year. Please let it be a great year. Or a sense of hope for healing. Lord, please let these pains go away. Lord, please let these physical or mental ailments uh, lessen or be extinguished. Have your prayers even been any different as you've gone into the new year? Have you, have you changed the way that you're praying at all? Like I said, I, I, don't, I don't really do New Year's resolutions, but especially when it comes to the new year, I try and refocus my prayer life. I'm one of those guys that does make a New Year's resolution to pray every year. And so one of the things that I thought would be good to ponder is, uh, is maybe, maybe a prayer of the Bible, uh, specifically a verse of the prayer in the Bible. The, the sermon today is titled, uh, New Year, Same Truth. Like, which is very defeatist and it's very sound now that I say it out loud. But, uh, <laughs> but it, it's, it's by way of reminder. Sometimes the best thing to do when we're going into a new season is not to look at the new, but to actually look at the old. To look at, at what's true. So I would like to turn your attention uh, to a moment in time where things were transitioning to something very new in the Bible. It was a new time for the apostles who had spent roughly three years with Christ. It was, it was something different, right? It was on the cusp of a change that they weren't expecting, even though they had been warned about. It was a time both harder and better. And the moment we're going to be focusing on is something very precious, honestly. Um, it's the longest prayer of Jesus ever recorded in the Bible, and our focus is going to be on one verse. So please turn, to your Bi turn in your Bibles to John 17. Uh, verse 17 is our focus. But as you're turning there, I, I want to I tell you, um, this, this really is precious. This is like a diamond, a gold mine in Scripture, right? Because if, if we pray for people out of genuine concern, out of genuine care for their well-being, then John 17 encapsulates what Jesus cares about for his people. And, and there, there's, um, like, we have to keep it in context. We have to remember that this was for the apostles, but there's a, there's a verse, there's a statement that he makes that applies to us as well. Um, so so what, what does Jesus pray about? Well, predominantly, he prays for his people to be united. Oh, that would be wonderful. It's not like we have things called denominations that keep, uh, keep all Christians in the world separated due to, due to doctrine, right? And frankly, I believe in denominations. I think that there's an importance of saying, this is what we believe. You stamp your flag in the ground. But if, if only there wasn't a reason for that, right? Right? 
But he prays for, for them to be united, and he grounds this request often through the theological truth that he and his Father are in union, are united, right? John 17, 8, for I've given them the words that you gave me, Father, and they, sent the, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Or John 17, 10, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. It's very together. Or the big one, John 17, 11, I am no longer in the world, Jesus says, although he still was, so that was kind of foreshadowing, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Jesus' grand concern for his people is that they would be united. Or the one that relates to us, which is John 17, 20 to 21. I do not ask for these only, but also, meaning the apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they, meaning us, may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Unity is one of the greatest gifts that Christians can bring to spread the gospel throughout the world. Jesus also prays uh, his, his, that his desire is for his people to be made holy in the world, not removed from the world. It would be easy for us to pray, Lord, please make us a monastery. Let us, re let us reject everything that's happening in the world and go build a stone-walled garden that we live in because I don't want to deal with all the stuff that's not what Jesus prays. He says this in verses 15 and 16, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus' prayer for you is, 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 Father, please don't take them out of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Knowing then that we have Christ's precious request uh, to his Father for his people to be united, to be made holy, uh, what then is the ground? Union, right? Unity is a wonderful concept. If only we've, we could be united in unity, right? If only that could be our binding agent. If only that could be the thing that locks us together. Yeah, we're united because we're united. <laughs> no, we're not, we're not that way. We need a ground, we need something to stand on. We need something more concrete. Where can we find unity and holiness joined together, working in harmony with each other? We find this nowhere else than in truth. Now let me read our verse for the day and you can see what I mean. This is one of the most trite statements that Jesus makes in his prayer, the most concise and clear. John 17, verse 17. Jesus prays, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. There's our ground. There's our cause for unity. Now, what does it mean to be sanctified? That's a wonderful, uh, wonderful word. In, in contemporary language, probably the only time you've heard a form of the word sanctify is in the band name Sanctus Real, right? Sanctus Real is how we say it with our overly anglicized pronunciation. Uh, but, but do you know what Sanctus Real means? It's actually Latin. Who knows what it means? 
True holiness is what it means. <laughs> um, which is kind of funny, actually, when you consider the band. But, but, uh, but it means truly holy or real holiness, right? Um, when Jesus prays for us, he makes the request for us his apostles and all the disciples throughout the generations that have reached down through a really messy family tree to you and me. He, pray, he makes the request that we be sanctified. Now, sanctification, the best translation in our minds and our English minds is holy. But then what does holy mean, right? Does it mean that like every time something enters the room, angels sing its praise? Like there's some dude with a tape, uh, uh, cassette tape that presses an old button and click, click, oh, right? Is that what it is? No. <laughs> yeah, it's set apart. Made separate. When Jesus prays for his people, he prays that the Father would make them separate, which is funny because he asks them not to be removed from the world. So what's something that stays here but is somehow sanctified, separated from everything else? Well, I like, I like thinking of it like that ordinary dish that you elevate to a special celebratory purpose. Right? A dish is a dish. It doesn't really matter what design is on it. Um, but, but let's say you have a dish that has, I don't know, a Thanksgiving wreath on it. And the turkey sits on that dish every year. It's holy. It's holy for the purpose of turkey. It's, it's poultry holy. Uh, <laughs> but... But it's, it's holy. Like, we don't really think about it like that. Or like the silverware that you take out only at family gatherings. That actually, by definition, is sanctified for that purpose. It's holy for that purpose. My mom actually has a drawer of silverware that has a, a line of tape over it. And then she has another drawer on the other side of the kitchen that's very separate from that one that, that you use every night. Right? You've got the good silverware that has the tape over it. That I, At one point, it actually had a sticky note that said, do not use. Uh, I think the sticky note fell off. Did she put another one on it? Okay. So, <laughs> so, so and, and it was every year you'd hear that drawer open, and it sounds awful. It's like, because like, it, it never gets opened. And then when you take the tape off, you'd hear that, <laughs> and you'd know that, that it's that time. It's that time to take out that silverware. Biblically, the word holy, right? It's like taking an ordinary tent and having it be erected as a particular purpose of the tent of meeting for the high priest to come before the Lord and offer sacrifices. There's nothing especially great about the tent. It's about the purpose of the tent. Ornate as the, the, uh, the objects inside typically were, they're not anything special without their particular purpose. How many places do you drive by? How many homes do you drive by that have some sort of a statue in their yard? Little do you know that statue at some point came from Costco. A million of them were made. None of them were special. They just thought it was a nice design that they could put in their yard. To be sanctified does not mean ornate. It means that a person or an object has a particular role that they exist to play. For a Christian, that role is to be distinct from the rest of the world. A Christian is not supposed to be stuck in sin, but rescued by grace through faith. A Christian is not just like everyone else. 
They're different. They're made separate from everyone else by how they act and how they think. So Jesus' request here, sanctify them, is, is, a, is, is especially for Christ's people to be set apart. And we, in this new year especially, be, should be praying that same thing. We should be, we should be pleading a, an echo to Jesus' prayer. We should be crying out to the Lord, make us holy. Sanctify me. Work in me and through me, despite me. <laughs> if Jesus requested of the Father to make us holy, to sanctify us, to set us apart, then we should be doing the same thing to our Father through Jesus. Should we not? Shouldn't we be praying what Jesus prays? John 17 is a wonderful, wonderful punch in the gut to how we usually pray. If God is your father, then you'll want to display his separateness, his otherness with your actions. Because you love him, you'll want to reflect his love for you, right? Oftentimes we summarize this as do what's pleasing to God. And I want to, I want to affirm that statement, but I kind of want to deny a misunderstanding of it. We're not trying to please God to make him happy, right? It's not like God has that thermometer that fills up. The more good things and pleasing things you do, he's like, man, I really do like that person. Oh, man, I like them more and more every day. This is fantastic. No, we're not trying to make God happy with us, but we're trying to live out, his, uh, live out of his happiness that's already for us through his son. That's kind of hard to think of, right? But, but I, I think the Apostle John says it well in 1 John 4.19. He says, we love because he first loved us. Through Jesus Christ, God is already looking in happiness on you. He's already looking at you with joy, with pleasure, with love, with compassion, with care. So that kind of leaves the thought of sanctification a little freeing to me. I don't know if it does to you, but I'm not trying to make him happier with me. I'm living because he's already happy with me. Through the sacrifice of Jesus, his, 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 his son, he looks on you and I, his adopted sons and daughters, with, with perfect happiness. We are adopted into his family. We're viewed with the same love that the father has with Jesus. Or as the apostle, put it, or apostle Paul put it, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Notice the in Christ. Uh, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. The father sees you through his son, you are adopted into the family through Jesus Christ. You are made holy through that. And you should be pleading with God to make you more holy. Now, it's one thing for us to be holy because the Lord is holy, right? First Peter 1.16, Leviticus, now just escaped my mind, Leviticus something. Uh, <laughs> but how can we tell if we're growing in holiness? Do you guys ever evaluate that as the days go by? Do you go, mm, man, I don't know. Am I becoming more holy? 
Well, the best guide that we have for determining our growth and holiness is not simply external transformation. Um, I, I knew a guy that, uh, that was really addicted to porn, okay? This is a, a kind of an awful example, but, the, but, but he kicked his habit. He came to our small group, and he's like, man, I stopped. I haven't, I haven't watched in, in almost two weeks. And I was like, wow, that's great, man. That's so great to hear. And everybody was praising the Lord for him. And then later, he, uh, I, I was talking to him, and, and he's like, yeah, my internet's been broken for two weeks. <laughs> There's a million reasons why our external actions can be affected that are not actually related to a growth in holiness. <laughs> so, and I hate to say he didn't kick the habit. He kicked it until Comcast came and resolved the internet issue, and then he went right back into his pit of despair. There's a million reasons why looking at somebody's actions are frankly unreliable, right? Many a man has been, uh, has, has been good on the outside, but inwardly has been enslaved to adultery or shady business deals. And then when they're finally found out, you're like, man, I never would have expected that person to be involved in those deals. There has to be another guide for us to evaluate our holiness. There has to be a guide that we can track and hold on to in the darkest of times. And Jesus gives that in this one sentence here. He gives us a guide. He asks the Father to sanctify them in the truth. Now we live in what's now called a post-Christian culture. Uh, 10 years ago, we would have called it a postmodern culture where, where truth was kind of fluid and questionable, right? My truth is not your truth. Um, but, but now we're in what's more accurately described a post-Christian, meaning, meaning what, what Christians hold on to as true has now been regarded as past. And so we live in a culture that's very anti-Christian truth. Not anti-truth, if you can define it in a postmodern way, meaning that you know, truth is contextualized, but, but we're, we're post-Christian. Um, if you have questions on that, like honestly, just Google Jordan Peterson. Uh, I don't like him, but he does a good job explaining that. Um, but, but if you think about it, in today's world, there are countless items competing for their, their, their hold in your mind as truth, right? Just flip through the news channels. <laughs> Listen to the same story from seven different perspectives. And they all purport to be true, right? And it's amazing how many churches fights, uh, I'm sorry, church fights have been over things purported to be true, presumed to be true, but are really just opinion posing as fact. In the past few years, these, opi these opinions have been, and are not limited to, the best political candidate to rule. Whether or not voting machines work properly. The best practice for vaccination or herd immunity. The best movies to watch. That one's my, my jam. Don't ask me about the other ones, but man, I'll tell you all the Marvel movies. Anyway, but the best movies to watch or the best way to view the Ukraine crisis. Is it the most important issue that Americans face today? Or is it something across the pond? And we really honestly should stop paying attention to it. Or is it somewhere in between? Which of these are true? How do you determine truth? What is truth? All these items have various facts mixed into them and try to uncover what is truth, right? 
Uh, but the best we can do is take those facts and kind of smush them together and, and whatever falls out for us, you know, hey, that's not important, but whatever happens to just kind of meld into the clay pot, this is true, look at my truth. Everybody worship my truth. But the problem is that when it's, when it's my opinion of what's true, it's not really true, is it? It's what I discern to be true. But it's fluid. Frankly, tomorrow could take my truth and just make it fall apart. If I found out that suddenly uh, President Zelensky has been a a figurehead and frankly isn't a good guy, hmm, man, I guess there goes all my Ukraine crisis talk and, uh, and, and, you know, my truth is null and void and I guess I got to find more facts to smoosh into a ball so I can say, look at my truth, worship my truth. What this world defines as truth is muddy at best. And when I say world, I really do include us Christians. We become horrifically involved in political and social endeavors, trying to convince others of the truth in a personal way, right? Why doesn't this person understand my view on this? Why doesn't this person vote the way I do? Why is this person so stupid to believe that they're right and I'm not? Or, or probably the, the, the best one I wrote down, what poor miserable soul doesn't agree with me on this or that? There's no room for disagreement. If we call opinion truth, then truth is disregarded. It's no longer important. And what I hold as, as true is what's really true. We should have opinions, don't get me wrong. We should make determinations. We do need to try and figure out what the best course of action is. But remember that when we look at John 17, 17, this prayer of Christ is centered on unity within his people. The things I just mentioned, probably every person in this room has a completely different view on at some point. And honestly, if you, t- if you were to talk to the other person across the, the aisle for it, you would end up close to murdering each other. Therefore, our prayer should align with Jesus. It should align with Jesus' pleading here that God would give us truth. God, give us truth. Sanctify me in the truth. Do you want to know how much you've grown in your holiness this last year? Don't judge by your actions. Judge by how much truth, true truth, you've absorbed, you've read. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, Jesus, to finish out the verse, says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, this is a made-up fact, okay? I'd venture a guess that 99% of the time we read the word word in the Bible, we assume it means the Bible, right? I read Psalm 119. Your word, law, word and law were synonymous, um, Word and rules were synonymous. Well, that means the, 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 the Levitical and Deuteronomical codes, right? The first of the Pentateuch. Um, and typically, our New Testament proof for this is, is Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, right? You could probably all say this with me. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Right? That's the word. That's the Bible. I can read the Bible and it cuts your heart. What happens if you read the verse after it, though? What's the author of Hebrews talking about? 
Hebrews 4.13, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now, this is Jesus. John 1.1, 1, 1, the, 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 in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. The word word in the Bible does not simply mean the Bible. Okay? When, when, when Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. He, he doesn't just mean the in inspired word that's written down. When we read of God's word, his logos, right? We, we ought to think of uh, that God is speaking of his revealing of himself, right? The Bible is God coming into human history and declaring or acting. And there is no better representation of that than in Jesus Christ himself. The Father revealed himself fully in his Son, who was the perfect representation of his glory and splendor incarnated as man. So when we read Jesus' prayer here, if we're thinking of a guide, how, how have I grown in holiness? It's not just how much Bible. It's how much Jesus how much Jesus have I absorbed or reflected? How, how much more sanctified am I that I have looked through the window of God's word and beheld Jesus Christ, the God-man, come to earth? We should read this prayer as be made holy in the truth. Jesus is truth. Or as Jesus said a few chapters earlier, if you don't believe me when I talk about Jesus being the truth, uh, John 14, 6, I am the way and the Truth and the life, and, the, and, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So how do we put this together, right? Psalm 119, the word is God's written word. Uh, John 1, 1, the word is Jesus. How do we put this together in our minds? I love the, uh, the, the Puritans because they kind of made up words to help us. Um, the, the, one, of, one of the ways that they thought about the word and its dual meaning, right, is that Jesus is, is God's word incarnated, um, enfleshed is actually what that means, like placed in flesh. Uh, Jesus is God's word incarnated. The Bible is God's word inscripturated or in, uh, inscripted written down. So when I read God's word to you, I am proclaiming God's word inscripturated. But this is only important insofar as you see Jesus incarnated. God's word, his written word, is to, supposed to be like a window to manifest the truth of Jesus Christ, the one who came to rescue us from our sin and helplessness. All of God's word, inscripturated, points to God's word incarnated and his glory and majesty in coming. So going back to the point then, oh, Scott, you've done a lot of tangents here. Where the heck are we? That's a good question. I don't know. Anyway, going back to the point then, <laughs> um, how, do we, how do we see and live this prayer of Christ for us, right? Uh, well, it's a prayer and it's a plea for, for um, God the Father to act in his people, right? We should look at this prayer and go, gee, do I match that? 
Have I been sanctified in the truth as God's word is truth? Ask yourself this question. How much closer to Christ have you grown through the window of the word this last year? Has your faith dwindled or waned? Because if your faith has dwindled and waned, then I can promise you that your knowledge has dwindled and waned. Your growth in knowing Jesus has waned. What truths of God have you discovered in the last year? How much more fully have you seen, uh, seen an aspect of God? In Sunday school, we were talking about how, how uh, theological, th- theology is good. We learn these terms of how to define God, but really they're like a well. So, uh, so like you, we, we can't plumb the depths, but we can keep dropping the bucket and pulling more water out of it. The word grace was the one I gave as the example. And frankly, that's a, that's a bottomless well. <laughs> uh, God's grace is bottomless. What truths of God have you discovered or seen more clearly in the last year? How much have you read or listened to the truth of God proclaimed or expressed in the last year? Do you reserve it only for Sundays? Because that would be a travesty. Frankly, no person can be properly nourished if they only eat once a week. Therefore, you should not be reserving your growth in faith to Sundays or just Wednesday nights. It should be a constant. When you hunger for God's word, we should not be satiating it with Netflix. Guilty. (laughs) When we hunger for God's word, we should be going to God. We should be going to the feast of his word. We should, we should be looking at, the, at, at the, the window of God's word and seeing the feast that's prepared for us in our salvation. Jesus' prayer for his disciples for us recorded in John 17 is precious. We can see Jesus' genuine concern for his people. We can, see, we can see what he considers most important. If you are God's adopted son or daughter, really son, actually, that, that's, a whole, that's a whole tangent for another day. But, but if, you, if you are God's son or daughter, then John 17 is written for you. You can see Jesus' concern for you. He wants you. He's, he's, he desires for you to be sanctified in the truth because his father's word is truth. Now, if you are not God's and you're living in rebellion, trapped in your sin, then know that Jesus died to satisfy his father's wrath against you. His death was the perfect sacrifice. And believing that to be true is the only requirement. Having that faith is the only requirement for God's grace to be extended into your life. And this is good, good news because it's, it's true. It's what God's word inscripturated testifies to. So some applications for you to go home with from this prayer. Some things I'd like you to be praying this week, this year. Pray that God would make you holy. Right? Sanctify me, O Lord. Make me holy. Set me apart as yours. And let me live progressively more and more separate as your own. Pray that God would give you truth. There's a lot of things competing for me to believe in this world, Lord. A lot of truths that are really just opinions. Whether they're my opinions or others' opinions, I need truth, Lord. And pray that the Lord would reveal truth to you through the window of his word about his son. The way I wrote this down was actually really confusing. Pray that the Lord would reveal to you 
a truth to you through the window of his word about his word, comma, his son. <laughs> but we need to be praying, I need to know you more, Lord. I need, I need to know about you. I need to know the things that you do. I need to know about your ways. I need to know about how to live. If you want to live Jesus' prayer in John 17, 17, that's how you do it. Sanctify me in the truth, Lord. Your word is truth. We've entered a new year this morning. Happy New Year. But we need to find ourselves falling into what is and always will be true. This year is not about betterment for us. It needs to be about God and his glory better displayed through us. As a church, united under the banner of the gospel, how can we display God's glory better? By being sanctified in the truth. His word is truth. Let me pray and then we'll, uh, we'll do communion today. Lord, we are desperate for truth. We are desperate. Uh, we're searching in all the wrong places. We're looking for love in all the wrong places. We're looking for truth in all the wrong places, Lord. We are desirous for, for, for your creativity, and so we need to be looking at creative things that, that display your glory, even if they're from uh, non-Christians. But we need to use that so that we learn more about how beautiful and wonderful you are. We need to know your word better so that we can know your word better. We need to know your Bible better so that we can know your son better. Help us as a church to be focused on what truly matters, which is the truth. In Jesus' name, amen.